That's the sound of Blue Hair and Sweet, the latest album from Sarah Juros, one of the most celebrated singer-songwriters in American music. Sarah grew up in Wimberley, Texas, and picked up the mandolin at age 9. She started playing with professional musicians at age 10, was signed to a contract at 16, and was nominated for her first Grammy at 18. And she studied her craft at the prestigious New England Conservatory of Music. To date, she's won four Grammy Awards across six solo albums and another album released with the Americana supergroup, I'm With Her. Not bad for somebody who will turn 30 just next week. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and this week we are speaking with Sarah Jaros about her newest albums, Blue Heron Suite and World on the Ground. Sarah's career has given her the opportunity to see the world. She's lived much of her adult life in New York City, but these two latest albums draw directly from her Southern group. Her music defies genre. The mandolin and banjo are staples of bluegrass, but Sarah points to the Texas singer-songwriter tradition as the inspiration for her newest work. Blue Heron Suite is a tribute to her mother and to the Texas coast, while World on the Ground offers a beautiful, novelistic look at her hometown of Wimberley. On this episode, we discuss her sources of inspiration, the struggles of releasing albums and of saying goodbyes during a pandemic, and what it's been like to play with some of her childhood idols. So let's go ahead and get started on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Sarah Dross, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thanks for having me. I guess it's probably a nice coincidence that we're speaking here heading into Mother's Day weekend because your latest album, Blue Hair and Sweet, is, is kind of a tribute to your mom and to Port Aransas, Texas. Tell us a little bit about this album and you know what your mom was going through and what, what you were going through when you started recording it. This has been a long time coming, this release. I wrote it back in 2017, and it's it's rare for me to uh, wait this long in between <laughs> recording something and putting it out into the world, but it actually now feels like perfect timing. And we, this was definitely sort of a purposeful choice to uh, to have it come out as close to Mother's Day as possible because the, the suite was largely inspired by my mom. And uh, back in 2017, she had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. It was a really tough time for her and for my family. I'm, I'm an only child. And so I'm very close with, with my parents. She was really going through it. And so I couldn't help but sort of think back to the blue herons on the Texas coast where I've been traveling since I was literally a a baby. I mean, it might've been the first place that I ever traveled to uh, besides my home. And the blue herons, I would just, we would see them on the coast there and they always, my mom is like very into signs and omens and and things like that. And she just always felt like the, the blue heron was a good omen. And so during that tough year, that was like a symbol that we all kind of clung to whenever we would see one. So I thought it would be a cool thing to, to try to write about. How is she doing now? She is in remission, thankfully. She's been in remission now for almost, I guess, about three years. So thanks. Yeah, she's doing well. Wonderful. I guess one of the bits of serendipity for us as your audience of it coming out you know, this year as well as, you know, your last album is even though they were written prior to us even knowing what COVID-19 was, they feel very much of the moment. You mentioned uh, seeing Blue Heron as an omen. We have a pond in our backyard and, you know, the last year or so, I've spent a lot more time sitting and watching the birds than I ever did before. And there's this kind of stillness, almost like the world has stopped, that's kind of prevalent throughout both albums, but particularly this one, does singing those songs feel different now than it did when you were writing them? It still feels very healing. I mean, I haven't had the chance to perform Blue Heron Suite very much, 
So it was actually written as a, I was commissioned by the Freshgrass Foundation and Festival, in, which is a great festival if people don't know about it. It's in North Adams, Massachusetts at the Massamoka Museum of Art. And commission is not really a word that I, I associate it more with classical music. So I think just the whole process of writing it was kind of different in that sense, but it was also very, just because of everything my mom was going through, it, even when I was writing it, it was very healing. And so for it to be coming out now after this last year, because it was such a healing process of writing, it feels even more so <laughs> that way now after this crazy last year. And I was able to perform the suite again, it, meaning it was kind of my first chance to actually play the music in a really long time. It still felt really emotional for me. And I think as a creative person, if a song that I write is still making me feel a certain way, even years after I write it, then I feel like I know I'd might have done something right because hopefully if I feel that way then my hope would be that the listener might feel that way too. It definitely comes through that way and this is your second post-pandemic release. World on the Ground uh, also had some songs that feel a little bit prescient. I'll Be Gone you know literally evokes life during during an apocalypse maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek and then Hometown and Johnny both kind of deal with people who have had gotten away from their hometowns you know one way or the other and then suddenly find themselves back home. And I think that was a common story for a lot of people in 2020, particularly, you know, being driven out of more expensive cities or just wanting more space. And both albums really kind of draw from, you know, Texas, the Hill Country and Wimberley on World on the Ground, and certainly Port Aransas on the coast uh, with Blue Heron Suite. You know, what were you envisioning as you worked on World on the Ground? It seemed like a very conscious effort to write about you know, where you grew up in a different way than you'd written about it before. It's interesting that these records are coming out in the opposite order of how they were written. So many of the interviews that I did surrounding World on the Ground was, I was talking about how World on the Ground was kind of the first time that I dove back into a lot of my Texas childhood memories and just the the rich imagery that memories that I have of growing up there and realizing that I had never really written about that. But in a way, you know, I wrote Blue Heron Suite first prior to any of those songs. And so it was really Blue Heron Suite that opened the floodgates for that, this sort of like Texas themed music that I've sort of been diving into this last couple of years. I guess chronologically, it would have made more sense for Blue Heron to come out first, but it almost, I'm I'm really glad that it's coming out this way because there's almost like more of a, a deeper poignancy within Blue Heron Suite. There's like a rawness about it. And I kind of, I don't know, even on my albums, I like to try to create sort of a, an up and down motion and so I even like to sometimes think about that from album to album where it's like World on the Ground was maybe more produced than any of my prior albums and so I like the idea of like having this bigger sound and then sort of coming down the wave so to speak with Blue Heron is like there's much more space it's much there's much more air it's a lot rawer in in vibe and I think that sort of somehow relates to the feeling behind the the imagery and, and the words as well. But yeah, it definitely, it happened the other way around in terms of the writing process. <laughs> you mentioned that going to the Texas coast is one of your earliest memories, but, you know, ha- had a 
I guess we should say unconventional teenage years. Certainly you, you were a professional musician at a very early age, got signed on uh, on your first record deal at 16, then went off to Boston for, for college, uh, lived in New York for seven, eight years after that. How do you maintain that connection to the South and to Texas uh, in, in a way that you know, shows through in, in songs that I think capture uh, the spirit of, of the community very perfectly? It's still the Texas is still the place, even though I've lived in all those other places you mentioned, and I haven't lived in Texas for a while, it's still the place that I've lived the longest of, of anywhere. I mean, the, another another part of sort of especially the world on the ground writing process was having this sort of full circle rediscovery of a lot of the Texas singer songwriter music that I grew up being just totally surrounded by in in lots of different ways. I mean, just around the house, my parents playing records at, I went to a weekly Friday night jam where people, I mean, it was a bluegrass jam, quote unquote, but it really was much more than a bluegrass jam. It was, bluegrass was a part of it, but it was also people coming in and singing Robert Earl Keene songs and Guy Clark songs and, um, you know, Nancy Griffith tunes and all of these, this rich Texas singer songwriter tradition. And so I think just that, sculpted my that was like the basis of my musicality kind of from day one was that this like Texas singer songwriter tradition um it's funny because I think early on because I played mandolin and it kind of came up in the bluegrass world a little bit people kind of associate the term bluegrass with me but in a way it's like the that Texas singer songwriter thing is almost more foundational it's like that's what I heard first before I heard bluegrass just via my parents playing records around the house. So having grown up with that, it's never going to leave me. It's, it's always a part of me. And so I think that's why it was important for me to now as an adult and having traveled so much around the world and realizing what a special area Wimberley and the Hill Country is, you know, almost having taken it for granted as, as a kid and realizing, wow, this this is a magical place. I just wanted to to explore that even more kind of from a as you said, like hometown and Johnny, like the narratives of these people who have left and then returned home, whether they want to or not, or maybe never left at all. That was something that I wanted to explore. And yeah, and then this last year, I mean, I was forced to leave New York, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, and I'm now living here in Nashville, which is great. And I'm, I'm grateful to have had another place to go. But it definitely like, ties into those feelings of when movement and uh, kind of being displaced almost is, is not within your control. And so that's kind of the first time I tried to tackle that within my songs. You talked about being forced to leave New York uh, and relocating to Nashville. I imagine that was very hard given the circumstances of not really being able to say proper goodbyes to people because of social distancing and things like that. Um, and it was also a year of an abrupt ending to Live From Here, uh, a show you've done with Chris Thiele for quite some time. Uh, and the, I guess the spiritual successor or direct successor of Prairie Home Companion, which had been on the air since 1974 or thereabouts. So a big loss for you know bluegrass folk Americana, that, that genre of music. What was it like saying goodbye to that? I, I don't think that y'all got a proper finale. It, it, that was a real, you know, lot, there were so many intense things over the course of last year. That was definitely, in a way, 
for the first few months from like March through May, I think so many musicians didn't really have a sense of how long this was. No, but not even musicians, just humans in general. It was, it was hard to say like how long this was going to go on. And I think by June, kind of over the summer, it became apparent, you know, oh, this is going to be a long haul, especially for musicians at that point, realizing like live music was going to be one of the last things to come back. And so then for that, that I remember it was like the first, it was actually a few days after my record came out. It, it was like that week of, <laughs> of just feeling like, oh man, it was so wild to release this album in the midst of a pandemic. And then a few days later, they announced that Life From Here was going to be canceled. That was probably the hardest thing. There was no uh, finale show. I think I, I especially feel for Chris in that sense. I think, you know, he didn't get a lot of notice with the, en the ending of that kind of being so abrupt. Yeah, it, it just was shocking. And um, especially to have left New York and at a certain point, like being a touring musician, as much as I was touring pre-pandemic, I, I could kind of be anywhere I wanted to and sort of base out of anywhere and just travel. But live from here was kind of the thing that was keeping me in New York. I mean, you know, in a way, because that's when I was home from tour, I would just do that show kind of whenever I was off the road. And um, so it was kind of the finality of like me deciding officially to like leave New York almost happened simultaneously when that show was canceled. It was just sort of feeling like, wow, there's nothing, there's not really a reason for me to, to be there anymore, which, which, yeah, as you said, was emotional and not, not getting to say goodbyes and, and, and all that, but New York is still there. And I actually was able to um, travel there to, to do these, these live stream shows that are happening now. And this, it was almost like, you know, being vaccinated and being back, it was almost like, okay, this is the goodbye that I, I didn't get to have. And, and almost like, I don't even need to say goodbye. It's, it's, it's there and I can still visit and, and that's okay. <laughs> and you will be going on tour to promote, I guess, not only Blue Heron Suite, but also part of also part of uh, World on the Ground. Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of uncertainty, you know, around touring coming back. I, I'm feeling, even within the last two weeks, I feel like there's been a lot of forward motion. Um, noticing a lot of musicians kind of posting tours in the fall and festivals announcing that they're coming back this summer and so that's all really exciting but there's still also things being canceled so it's kind of a mixed bag and um my hope is that I can you know when things are are more open even than they are now and um things are kind of settling back into normal that I can tour actually get to tour world on the ground and also blue heron suite I think I think those are going to be two separate tours in my mind because you know musically and like band wise they're they're two completely different vibes. Um, even if, you know, if people buy tickets to, the, to these live streams, they'll kind of see. I mean, the, the first live stream was my my band that I was supposed to go on on the road with for World on the Ground um, that we never, never got to even play a single show. So that was really, really fun to finally get to play that music like almost a full year after the album came out. And then the other one, the other live stream will be a different band um, for Blue Heron Suite. So yeah, my, my goal, I think hopefully in the fall, you know, I can hit the road with, with both projects. Are you somebody who 
right through the emotions that you're experiencing, you know, in the moment? Like, were, were you actively writing about 2020 in the last year? Or are you somebody who might revisit that later or just want to kind of separate yourself from, from that as a lost year? Um, that's a good question. I, I think I'm a little bit of both types of, 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 like I oftentimes if, I don't know, my process is sort of like ever changing. I don't know if I have like a quote unquote process, but the, the thing that's, that seems to be, you know, consistent is that I'm always collecting little snippets of ideas. And then, as you said, looking back and sort of revisiting them after the fact and sort of seeing what works together melodically and lyrically. I also feel like I'm a very, like I work creatively in cycles. And so it was sort of weird timing to, I've had this, you know, huge outpouring of songs with World on the Ground and it came out, I finished it just as things started to shut down. So I wasn't feeling very creative for for kind of most of the first part of of the the pandemic and and a big chunk of last year. I, I wasn't feeling like I had much to say about it. I wasn't feeling like I, yeah, because I was at the end of my creative process with World on the Ground. And um, there were a couple of things, I think towards maybe the fall, once I started getting into figuring out my schedule and and what what my life is like at home for such a prolonged amount of time, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily writing all the time, but I was figuring out, I was discovering why I like am a musician in the first place and and rediscovering albums that I loved and that like help just like reminding myself why I fell in love with music. And so a big part of that was I kind of did this like cover series in the fall for like 10 weeks. I just like would pick a different song every week and just sort of quickly record it on, um, on my garage band <laughs> and, and put it up. And that was like, that proved to be like really healing and helpful. Like, I think not just on a musical level, but also like feeling connected to the fans at a time when I couldn't actually be with them. Yeah. And so I think after I kind of went through that process, it was like that opened the gates to like start to feel like I wanted to write music again, but I still haven't written a ton this year. I feel like just in the last month, I've started to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm getting into the next cycle, whatever that's going to be. <laughs> Cause what would have been the last year that you would have not toured at all. I mean, you would have been, I guess, a, a child. <laughs> is that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, I, this is my life as I know it, you know, from the time that I was a preteen, I guess, you know, I've, I've been playing shows and, you know, I wasn't touring, you know, internationally as a teen, but basically started like right out of high school, like 18, just whenever I was not in school, or making a record, I was on the road. So that was a big part of this year was just kind of like getting to know myself better, you know, learning healthier habits, things that sometimes get tossed to the side when you're on tour. (laughs) I mean, it sounds so simple because these are things that normal humans deal with on a daily basis, but like figuring out a morning routine and, uh, you know, all these things that have helped me stay sane over the last year. Um, just good, good mental health practices, which I've had to, to work on a lot over the last year. 
I'm thinking about your song, Broussard's Lament, and how you kind of captured the horrors of Katrina through through the eyes of a person. And it's not necessarily an overtly political song, but, you know, it's clear that it's about somebody who's been kind of left behind and kind of left on their own. And inspiration is probably not the right word about what you drive, I mean, draw from something like 2020, but it has certainly been as turbulent as, as the 60s was. And, and I'm wondering if you are drawn towards telling any of those types of stories or? That was a great question. I mean, I think, you know, I, well, first of all, nobody has um, commented on Broussard's Lament in many, many years. I mean, it's an older song of mine. Um, and actually that makes, I haven't played it in so long. So that's, um, I'm going to revisit that and maybe work it up because it feels like that song needs to maybe be played again in, in uh, after this last year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I feel like it's helpful for me. And I think a lot of the most effective songs I've found with in terms of what's tackling what's happening in the current moment, you know, politically or socially are these story songs. Like, I think it's very hard to write that way from the first person perspective. So I think oftentimes like the most effective songs are like from a character perspective where you do kind of approach it in this like novelistic way. Um, like the Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll comes to mind, you know, so something like that. Those types of political songs have always meant the most to me. I mean, I, I can't say that I've been the type of creator or musician to explicitly write political songs, but I, I do think that if I were to try to do it, or even if I've sort of alluded to it in some of my songs, it, it feels, it helps me to sort of get out of my own head and my own experience by writing from a different character's point of view. And I think, you know, that that's also just helpful on a human level to, to try to not just think about your own <laughs> your own life and your own story the whole time, but try to think about how it must be for somebody else, you know, and how, how somebody else's experience might be really difficult. I, you know, that is actually a little bit kind of the feeling behind my song, Pay It No Mind on World on the Ground, which is like trying to remove your, like to, to get outside of your own head. Um, and so I think this is maybe like a, a long way around. Um, it's a big question, but I do feel very inspired by by the storytellers, and I, you know, I I also want to add maybe besides Roussard's lament, I actually don't feel like I've I've been that type of writer until World on the Ground. You know, I think I I kind of owe it to John Leventhal as a producer for encouraging me to write from that sort of storyteller point of view, and I do feel like most of my writing prior to this album was largely you know, the opposite of what I'm saying, like it, inward looking, internal monologue, like about my feelings, you know, and that's fine too. I mean, that's, that's another way to, to write and that can be effective, but I don't know. It just felt like he, he was encouraging me, like, why don't you try to tackle things from a different perspective? And I think that I want, I feel like I'm just scraping the surface with World on the Ground. Like I want to try to write more that way moving forward. Coming up after the break, Sarah Jarosz discusses playing with her childhood heroes and lessons learned from Steve Martin. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. 
You can sign up for it at reckonsouth.com newsletters. And you grew up, I assume, kind of listening to Chris and Sarah with Nickel Creek, um, you know, that I don't know if they were solely responsible, but they were certainly involved with making bluegrass music uh, along with Alison Krauss, you know, very cool and mainstream again, um, along with Sean. Have you have you performed with Sean at all or is it just Chris and and Sarah? No, I, I, Sean is so great. I've, I've performed, I haven't, I guess I've sat in with Nickel Creek. I've, I've jammed with Sean a ton and we've hung out a bunch in California. I guess I haven't like gotten to play with Sean, like in a professional manner, but like all of our playing has just been like impromptu and fun, but I would love to actually like work on music with him. It's funny. I was just talking about him with my boyfriend earlier today. He's just Sean is just one of the best humans and musicians. Um, yeah, I mean, like it really, I cannot understate how how huge Nickel Creek's music was. I mean, it, it really kind of changed my life. I mean, almost single-handedly, um, not only to have been on live from here with Chris, but also to now be in a band with Sarah. I mean, it's like, and also Crooked Still, Aoife's, uh, other band, yeah, they were wildly influential to me as a young musician, and so um, it's pretty cool to to be in a band with them. And and you know, I think it says a lot about like the acoustic music world that I kind of grew up in to have heroes be mentors, be friends. You know, it's like this. I don't think that it necessarily like happens as commonly in in other styles of pop music or you know rock or whatever you know people still musicians in general like love to collaborate and and exchange ideas but I just feel like it's really prevalent in you know the acoustic bluegrass Americana world and so I'm pretty I've always been thankful for that and especially like to have been so young and you know they they were if I was 10 they're about 10 years older than me so they were 20 when I think back on that now, it's like, what a 20 year old doesn't want to hang out with a 10 year old. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, they didn't have to do that by any means. They didn't have to like be, and this goes for them, but also like so many of my musical heroes, you know, Tim O'Brien, um, you know, Bela Fleck, Jerry Douglas, they didn't have to extend that time um, to encouraging me, but they did. And they did it in a way where it was like, I didn't, they treated me like a peer and they um, showed me respect. And so it was like the, because of that, I feel like the music had to rise to that level, or I wanted to have my musicianship rise to that level of respect that they were showing me because they weren't treating me like a kid, you know? And so I'm just like, super grateful for that. You were saying that that may not be entirely unique to, to this genre of music, but it's certainly a major part of it. Uh, we learned a lot about, I mean, a lot of people shared those stories last year about John Prine. Uh, and I'm thinking about, you know, the, maybe the, the nitty gritty dirt band sessions and how they connected, you know, the, the Grand Ole Opry era to uh, the, the next era and, and that kind of long through line of that music. Do you, do you feel any obligation to kind of pay that forward to to, I mean, you're still a pretty young generation, but to the, to the next generation. Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, I'm wherever I can, you know, I, it's, um, I think I, sometimes I feel like I was sort of around at this, like really, 
I was a kid in a really magical era for like bluegrass and acoustic music in the sense that there were some camps that sort of started while I was like in the prime age to sort of like the mandolin symposium comes to mind. It was a music camp that was started by Mike Marshall and David Grisman and, and Chris Thiele was a part of the first one. And the first one was when I was 13 and then it lasted for 10 years and it's, it's not even around anymore. And so there's some things like that where I feel like, oh man, I wish, I wish it was still, you know, around so that maybe I could even be a teacher or, you know, just go back and kind of give back to the thing that, <laughs> that meant so much to me. But I, I try to do it wherever I can. I, I was actually just had a really wonderful experience getting to teach a, a master class for um, NEC, New England Conservatory, where I went to college. I mean, it was on Zoom, obviously, because <laughs> they're not, you know, in, in person. But still, it was just, just getting to do that. I think I was more inspired by that than anything, you know, in, in, in quite a while to sort of hear these young musicians writing and, and creating. And it's, it's just so easy in life to sort of get bogged down in your own zone. And um, it's just, it's the best to sort of hear, hear new people coming up and being creative. So yeah, whatever I can do to sort of give back to younger people because I was certainly the beneficiary of so much um, wisdom and, and mentorship for a long time. Um, even beyond, you know, the, the music realm, and, and and I don't want to discount his talent as a musician, but you got the opportunity to tour, at least briefly, because uh, I saw you uh, on this tour in Birmingham with Steve Martin and Martin Short uh, with, with I'm With Her. Can Steve hold his own against you in a banjo? Is he is he the real deal? <laughs> he is the real deal, 100%. Yeah, I've actually been very fortunate to spend quite a bit of time with Steve now and um, it's so cool how much he loves the banjo and he's really he really cares he really cares about the the details of it he really is just obsessed with it and so so much of my time with him musically has been he'll play and then he'll just like put the banjo in my hands and be like please play something for me and then he'll just kind of stare like fascinated you know at the, at the finger bar like wow how do you do that you know and he's Steve Martin you know he's he's as as funny in in everyday life I mean it's just like I, I can't even believe that I've gotten to, to spend time with him and that tour in particular with Ethan and Sarah we got to spend quite a bit of time hanging out with with him and Martin Short which was just totally surreal and like I can't even believe I just said that sentence <laughs> but uh they're just even that like it's almost that feels related to what I was saying earlier about my musical heroes. It's like Steve and and Martin Short like could get they could get anybody, you know, and the fact that they just want to support us, you know, and and I, I know they've supported like a lot of younger musicians. It's and take us around on on that tour with them was just it says a lot about their character, you know, I, I guess. And and that it really at the end of the day, like when it's about the art and when it's about the music and when it's, when that's sort of the center of gravity or, or the barometer for creative people, then you kind of can't go wrong, you know? And that's, that's what I tried to, to, to have witnessed that in my heroes, that that's sort of like the important thing is the art 
and the rest, you know, you have to be smart about the business and all that. But like, if you get too lost in that, you know, you kind of, if it's about what you're creating, then you kind of can't go wrong. Well, to wrap up, you know, you mentioned that you've been revisiting a lot of albums this year, um, you know, for comfort and peace, wondering if you could just recommend a few albums that you've rediscovered and why our audience should listen to them. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's funny, a lot of what I've been listening to has actually carried over from what I was listening to, to get inspired to write World on the Ground, um, just kind of going deeper in the in the Texas singer-songwriter world. I think that's also connected to the fact that I haven't been able to visit home really in the, in the I, once in the last year. And so it's kind of nostalgic, like just like missing home. I feel comforted by listening to, you know, a record that's been really kind of central to me over the last year is this record by Eric Taylor, who I don't think a lot of people know about Eric Taylor, but he's, he's, I think he actually passed away last March, but he's a phenomenal writer from Texas. And it's just his self-titled album, Eric Taylor, I think is a masterpiece. And it's like one of my go-tos just for inspiration and um, talk about like novelistic approach to writing. I would highly recommend that album. Also constantly listening to James McMurtry. He's just as good as it gets, I think. And then also kind of, I've, I've listened a lot to uh, Big Thief who maybe is like, people don't associate them with, they're not, they're like more in the indie world than like the the singer songwriter world, but actually the, um, the guitarist Buck Meek also grew up in Wimberley, <laughs> funny enough, small world. And I like went to high school with his younger brother, Dylan. And so I, I actually knew him in Wimberley. And so it's been really just so fun to kind of watch their meteoric rise. Um, and I just love Adrian's songwriting so much. And I really just think that they've, they've created their whole own sonic world and uh i'm super inspired by it i guess as an alabama fan and an alabama grad i would be remiss if i didn't take the opportunity to ask if you could write a crimson and white song to counter uh, orange and blue uh, orange and blue is such a great one but you know it's uh it it's hard to listen to as an alabama fan. next uh next record <laughs> okay perfect i'll hold you to that uh well sarah thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and um hope you get to get out uh and tour soon and will that mother's day uh live stream be available for people to watch after mother's day yes we i just um it was supposed to be available for a week but we just decided to keep it available until the 23rd which is actually my birthday so a little little gift on my birthday to fans <laughs> Well, hopefully people will be able to track that down uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that's our show. Special thanks to Sarah Jarosz for her time. All of her albums are available now wherever music is sold or you can find them at www.sarahjarosz.com. If you like our show, please join the conversation, our weekly newsletter where we look at the South through a different lens every week. Sign up for it at reckonsouth.com newsletters. This episode was produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It was edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team at Edit Audio. All of the music that you hear in this episode is from Sarah Jarosa's album, Blue Heron Suite. If this is your first time listening to us, why don't you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And if you've been listening for a while now, why don't you send it to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so we can keep growing conversations about the South. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us. <laughs>